Hey folks, welcome to episode 158 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode features Selena Eon. She is an avid explorer of the impenetrable Cascade Mountains and a naturopathic doctor practicing at Origin Holistic. Most people fear heights, but what compels them to face their fears? Them is you even if you haven't experienced it before. There's many things that you, um, that people do that seem impossible, especially from wherever you are. And I think there's people out there who are great examples of that and visceral reminders of what we're able to do and how we can improve ourselves. And for the joy of it, for the fun, Selena Eon is a wonderful example of this because she is, I'd say, very prolific in her um, in the adventure space, and she's also a doctor. Before we start, one of my favorite um, books from Dr. Seuss is called "Oh, the Places You'll Go," and here's a little excerpt: "Oh, the places you'll go." You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. You're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting. So get on your way. Dr. Seuss was one of the things that helped me make sense of the world in my youth. I didn't know it at the time. But he exposed me to very interesting ideas that I would continue to elaborate on um, through my youth and from a child to becoming a parent. It's wild reading those same books you read when you were a kid to your child and having a newfound insight and picking them up to read on my own. (laughs) And I'm going to play you out with a song by The Living Arrows called Set You Free. You can check out more um, about The Living Arrows on Spotify, Bandcamp, and even on YouTube. And if you'd like to check out some of Selena's adventures, you can find her um, on Instagram at Dr. Selena Eon. And I'll leave the link to that in the show notes. Without any further ado... Here it goes. Are you afraid of heights? Yeah, I would say yes. Wait, so <laughs> how how does that work with your with your interests here in, in climbing mountains and such? Um, so am I afraid of heights? Yes. Am I afraid of falling? Definitely. Uh, I have learned to manage that fear and to get comfortable with that uncomfortable feeling of that fear over many years of practice. But if you're familiar with, say, um, Caliton and Putrid Pete's Peak, you're off I-90, which they're a ways away from you. Uh, they're probably easy class three. Putrid Pete's is probably like 10 feet of class three, mm-hmm. if that. It was my first scramble. And I remember looking at it and actually having vertigo and feeling like I might tip over and fall because wow. I felt so dizzy from it. And this was like a while ago. Caliton, the first time I tried it, same thing. I did not summit. Wow. <laughs> and, yeah, did yeah. You, did you make the decision to turn around or were you with someone um, who like talked with you and made that decision? Well, so, I mean, an interesting story is that was the person who taught me to scramble. I, when I was a, a young mother, medical student, um, I would have time without my kids and I would just go hike whenever I could. My fitness level isn't what it is now, but I could still go hike. And one day it was horribly rainy and I showed up at Malacqua Lake Trailhead to go hike to the lake in the rain. And I met a, a guy in the parking lot, the only other person. He said, huh, we're the only people here. No one else wants to hike on a day like this. Ha ha ha. And I said, yeah, probably. And he said, we should hike together for safety. <laughs> and I looked, I said, well, Okay, sure. Because I like people and I figured anyone who's out there hiking in the rain like me is probably equally weird as me and we'd probably get along. And we did. 
And that day he brought me part of the way up Kaliton and I had only backpacked. Wow. And it was November and it was a little bit icy too. And we were on this and he'd climbed Denali and all these big peaks. Whoa. <laughs> and so he's there with me and he said, you know, maybe we shouldn't go for the summit today or something like that. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm feeling really afraid. <laughs> but then he did successfully get me up Putrid Pete's Peak. And then not too much longer after that, he and I had a very eventful climb up the tooth, my first rock climb. And he actually just free climbed the tooth with the rope tied around his waist and then anchored it to a tree and belayed me up in my hiking boots. And I remember being quite terrified, but I didn't make it up. Wow. And so what I learned is at first, I just didn't look down and I focused and, and climbing is so Zen. You probably know this, oh, right? Yeah. You're just present right then, right just now. Full flow state. Like this is the only thing that matters. Mm -hmm. And so I used to just not look down and now I can look down and say, Whoa, cool. Some exposure there. Definitely not going to fall. And as long as I've got good hands and feet, it's all good. Mm -hmm. If I'm precarious, I, I do not. I'm still, I, I fear I did a climb maybe a week ago, I went to somewhere called Russian Butte mm -hmm. and it would have been good to have a rope. It was like fourth class and wet and Ooh. slippery. And I had two little tiny fingers and no feet. And I had to kind of beach whale myself up this thing. And oh, I actually, yeah. my leg was shaking so hard. I yelled to my friend Trace and I said, I'm fucking terrified right now. And I said, but I have to go for it because if I slip off here, I'm going to fall in the boat. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> he said, you've got this. And so I said, all right. I mean, there's no choice. Yeah. You just go. You got to commit. So I, yeah. So I always have that fear. And then ever since Jake died, I have a different fear of falling in a hole. Mm -hmm. He died from falling in a hole that in snow that it wasn't a hole when he stepped on it but it turned into one he fell 50 feet and then died yeah. so now when i'm looking at permanent snow fields i'm almost thinking is there a hole under here yeah. so now i have this new fear of falling in addition to my other one but oh. they're manageable fears mm -hmm. and what well, was that when you went and did the your that scramble right on that rainy day was that um was that part of, was that characteristic of, of you at that time um, to do something that was a little bit out of your comfort zone and confronting it? What, or what made you, um, what made you move in that direction or feel inspired and gripped to, to do those things? That's a good question. And it, I am naturally a person who likes to try new things because I'm curious, but I had not had the physical ability to consider doing something like that before. I used to weigh 200 pounds, you know, I was oh, wow. definitely not a very fit person in my younger life. And so after that point, I'd lost like 65 pounds and was able to go hike anywhere I wanted. And I, wow. I still hiked up Mailbox Peak weighing 200 pounds, but it would take me like nine hours and I could do it three times round trip in the same time it take me once. 20 years ago how does that so, make you feel that's pretty pretty good yeah so 43 year old me could kick 20 year old me's butt <laughs> wow everywhere yeah so i finally had this ability and i'm up there i'm like well i should just try and i'll see and i still do that now i do lots of climbs where i think about can i even do this i don't know but i mean the worst thing that'll happen I guess technically is that I would die, but normally I think the worst thing that would happen is that I'll decide it's not going to work and I'll turn around and bail, mm -hmm. but I don't know that I've ever actually turned around and bailed. And I do the same thing with workouts in general. I give myself, even if I don't feel like a workout, mm -hmm. um, I always start with the knowledge that I can choose to stop and bail if I'm not feeling it. Did you develop so, that before you got into like the whole climbing and hiking and, and stuff or is this after after it came from yoga? Actually, I oh, used to really? practice pre COVID a lot of hot yoga, a lot of, yeah. yeah, a lot of 90 minute Bikram yoga. And first I wouldn't let myself drink water. I kept making all these rules for myself to make it harder. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's how I operate with extra suffering. So yeah, I made, I'd be saying, I think, Oh, I haven't had enough water today. There's all these excuses. So I developed this system that I went and if 10 minutes into class, I wasn't feeling it. I was allowed to lay down and do Savasana for another 80 minutes. Never happened. Wow. 
never happened, but giving yourself permission to bail and turn around for me, I think is really freeing because then you can try more things and know that you're not letting yourself down if it doesn't work. It's okay. We, no one is successful at everything. But that's such a, such a fine and like beautiful line to figure out what you can and cannot control and how much of you wanting to stop is in earnest and, and out of um, disinterest or like you have to really trust yourself. And it sounds like you did that through a lot of practice. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And say, I, I don't think you can get there without a lot of practice. How else do you know yourself except by being yourself and exploring that boundary whenever you can and finding that line? I mean, that's what kids do all the time. You look for the line, you look for the line. And I still am doing it now. <laughs> but you, you, without, without those mountains, um, you, you theoretically couldn't find that line. Like even if you had like a, if we lived in Oklahoma, uh, I'm assuming Oklahoma's flat, but I heard there's climbing out there. But if I were to assume it's flat, um, entirely flat and we're in Oklahoma and we're hitting all the hiking trails, you might not be able to encounter that part of yourself, right? Probably not. You'd I, probably, if I were still as physical a person as I am now, I'd be working on like, how fast can I run a 5k or yeah. something looking for that line. But I, I don't, see. I don't love that personally, because I've got hills and I love to run uphill. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's my thing that I could relate to is that I was provided with the the games of like, how fast can you do something? And now it's the FKTs and the backcountry stuff really appeals to me. But um, just doing that for its own sake, like a non-exposed trail that's pretty, that's really straightforward and it doesn't have any like technical features in the, in the trail. If, when I thought that that's all that there was, that wasn't, um, I didn't want to play that game. And when I found these other games of where I have to worry about, oh, this is too risky. Like I have to mitigate risk. And, um, and also I love here the, the effort of going, well, I hate the effort of going uphill, but I love the chaos and flow of like, of running downhill, especially like really steep stuff. And you don't love the uphill. No. No? <laughs> no. Why not? Why um, not? Because it's all it's almost like it's like work that never ends. And uh-huh. and it's um and then the moment that you that you stop putting effort, you lose all of your momentum and you have to start it up again. And it yep. it's like this sensation of going downhill, I feel tired, but going uphill, it's the sensation of like tiredness and exhaustion that's unlike downhill downhill it's like flow focus um excited and a little tired yeah yeah i get that i i torture train myself to learn to run uphill (laughs) how did that go because that's my next step (laughs) well i started with small uphills and i would just run up as far as i could and keep in mind i started running on trails as like 180 pound me so it was not very much running um so it might be like 10 steps. And then after a while, that 10 steps became 15 steps and it became 20 steps. And then it became me running up 500 vert. And now a good trail run where I'm doing a hill train, I'll try to run up a thousand vert in about two, two and a half miles mm-hmm. and then get the flow downhill. Yeah. And what I'm finding is that if you can shut your brain off, like in a good yoga practice where your brain is off and you're just running, I just notice everything around me. I hear my feet, I hear the birds, I hear raindrops in the trees, uh, and I'm not noticing my suffering anymore because it's not there. There's all the joy around me and I'm just working, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. But it probably took me mm, several years of trying to do a thousand bird trail run once a week to get to that point. I'd get stuck in when I would try to do something like that, where it's like um, this simplistic view of like, what's my pace and um, what's the distance. And I'd get caught in this dynamic of like pace, distance, pace, distance. And what I realized is, is that that was such a, for me anyways, a small component of what was going on. And You're micromanaging. It was, a, and, and a lot of it was like a symptom though, like of, you know, of, of what I was really trying to understand, which is like, 
how does my mind engage with the process and how do I treat myself when I feel the intensity is too high and how do I treat myself when I feel the intensity is too low? Where is the sweet spot? Because I used to get this thing in an exercise where you're like, you're going and you're like, oh, I could go harder. And it's like, go harder. And all of a sudden you're, despite how I'm feeling inside, because there's part of my body, like there's these moments where it's like, oh, I want to stop. No, you can go harder. And there's that I feel is like a disconcert of trust. Because if your body's telling you that this is too intense and you have disbelief and you ramp it up, like, do you even know what the fuck's going on inside of you? And this became more of an opportunity not to like achieve, oh, I'm going to, you know, get a minute per mile quicker, but to, I'm going to learn how to, um, to build a relationship with my mind and my body. And I'm going to learn how to like interact with it differently when I feel tired and interact with it when I feel sick and when I feel energetic and alive. Because I even found when I'm energetic, there is a place where you like a kid almost when you get really excited and you just give into all of that energy. And all of a sudden, you like for me, I've hit a wall because I've gotten too overwhelmed with the excitement and I gave it all away right away. Oh, yes. So it takes time to practice and practice to get that even consistent pace. That is a magic that I have finally feel like I've gotten. And many of my hiking partners, I, I lead because I'm so consistent. And I can keep that consistent pace for hours. And sometimes it'll be easy. And sometimes it's not as easy. But I don't know, with I, I no longer think about it. Even I have the same pace almost all the time, unless I'm with someone else, I will slow down for them because or if they're faster than me, then they put up with my pace. <laughs> but I don't know, it just gets easy over time. I had one day maybe it was last year and I went to mailbox and I thought, I'm just going to hike up mailboxes. I no longer like suffering. I don't want to be going so fast that my heart's pounding and I'm, you know, I just thought I'll go up what's a fun pace. And I looked at my watch when I was at the top and it taken me like an hour and 12 minutes or something. I thought, huh, that's incredibly fast. And it felt really good. Yeah. What's up with that? So I, I did the haystack on Sai this week and it took me like an hour and 13 minutes from my car to the top of the haystack. Again, wow. that's a blazing fast yeah. pace, but I'm at the point with my aerobic training that those that pace actually feels good. Mm -hmm. I didn't run any of it. If I really wanted to suffer like I was doing a few years ago, I'd make myself run all the flats. And But yet I'm faster now than I was when I was running sections of it because my aerobic fitness is better. And I also, I want it to feel good. I don't like this pace where it feels bad. Jake and I used to do training hikes and he's, you know, he's faster than me. We'd go to the cable line and he could do the cable line at his fastest in less than 27 minutes. Wow. My, I know. It's, he's also, he was 6'2 and he had big long legs and yeah. he's just fitter than me and younger and stronger. Uh, and so he'd always be saying, come on, you can do faster because I you're talking with me and I know you feel fine. I'd say, I know, but me going so fast that I feel miserable isn't worth it to me mm -hmm. to get a PR. <laughs> I want to feel good. And so that meant like my PR is like 34 minutes and 34 minutes is great. I'm happy with 34 minutes. I don't need to suffer extra for two more minutes. And I never think about my miles, how fast I'm running in miles or any of that. I just, I want it to feel good. And the micromanaging steals joy for me. I don't want anything to steal my joy. Like looking at my watch. I don't want to look at my watch when I'm part way up. I want to look at my watch at the top and say, oh yeah, it took that long. Cool. Is that the same mindset that says like the, this like kind of different way of going about things there um, with your pacing and that cost benefit analysis? Is that the same thing that goes on, you think, with people who have like obsessive or fixation on eating or like a fixation on like abusing drugs, for instance, and not using drugs, but abusing it, right? And um, you, you come from this person and it's like, I wish that you would only use drugs or only eat this much food or do this much drugs or don't do these certain kind of drugs and don't use these kinds of food. And that's like a very external kind of, you know, system which has its place. But it seems that the real core, that's more of a symptom to an overall thing, which is your cost benefit analysis. And I think 
to eat to you between you and Jake in that moment, right? That's to each their own because he's not suffering yeah. and causing problems in his life. But how I see like on the broader scheme of things is, is that um, is someone making the cost benefit analysis, truly knowing what they want and what they're willing to do for it. And right. And like personally, yeah. when you know that you're making that decision and you've thought about that, whatever the fuck, you know, consequences and rewards, that's your own thing. But like it, is would it be fair to deduce that to a cost benefit analysis? I mean, probably. I work a lot with patients about diet and lifestyle and habits. That's one of I have a degree in nutrition and I've studied exercise science extensively. And so many people do not actually sit and think about the cost benefits of their behaviors and what it, some of those behaviors are robbing them of in the long term. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, it doesn't make you a bad person if you're not able to do that. Yeah, exactly. It just is what it is. And not all of us are introspective in that way. And we don't recognize that eating at McDonald's three times a week is why we feel exhausted and crappy. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we feel too exhausted to make healthy food. And then there's this vicious cycle. So I, I see it a lot. I try to be really kind and empathetic because nobody, myself included, has all their shit figured out. Yeah, exactly. And um, do you do you find when you work with like patients and stuff, is it ever your goal to get them to conscientious or consciously consider like uh, improving a cost benefit analysis or do some people, do you have to work with them in a way that they don't, they might not think or embody that like introspection like that in their life? Because I don't know how much of it's like me or you know me personally and like other people who like think like me or how much of it is is just being a person in general i think most people don't really think about their diet lifestyle there at all about what they're doing that's my experience i think that's probably the bulk of humanity and you know, my goal with my patients is for them to love and respect their bodies and take good care of it. And that there's not one right way that you can love and respect your body and take good care of it. That picture is going to look different for different people. But I have such great love and respect for human bodies. And I'm sure anyone who sits in my office and talks with them, me about it sees that because it's it's there and it's powerful and i think that if we had a planet full of happy healthy people it's really the best hope for humanity overall so even if you just think a little bit more about what goes in your mouth where it came from how far something got shipped to get to you uh even if it's just one little thing that's different i'm happy with that i'm patient with my patients yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't get here to where I am health-wise without a lot of work, and not yeah. everyone has the desire to put in that much work, but that's See, okay. That's that's something that was really like, really helpful to me, especially my former self, because that's exactly increment. I only got to the situation where I am and my own principles and values incrementally, and like... Yeah where the the reason why i kept even talking about that cost benefit analysis is even on an unconscious level um it really helped me without without knowing why and having a plan because i would smoke you know um i'd smoke cigarettes uh like a pack a day or, or so and then i got into e-juice and i used to work for uh, an e-juice company and we would be able to smoke on the job and I started to do, yeah, I started to do stuff where <laughs> I was able to literally smoke whenever I wanted, as much as I wanted. So it would be every, and this isn't hyperbole, this would be every 10 to 20 minutes I'd be smoking. And I just, <sighs> over, and over and over again, yeah. And it was like, because it was just the intensity would always ramp up. And I'm a kind of person where like, um, if I have to, I like to at least have one thing where I can continually push it and push it and push it. Um because if i don't have yeah. that one thing then it'll just find its way in something else yep and uh, i was i get into martial arts though after developing that that uh escalation of the habit and i'm in martial arts and we're doing kickboxing and kickboxing something where it's just like bah, 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 bah. Yeah. and it's like such a fast rhythm and the ability to to make very cardio yeah, yeah. And the ability to maintain that rhythm is just it's just so much fun and like it it makes me feel so good and feel so connected with other people. It's probably like the best that I ever felt in my life at that period of time. And I was like bought and sold. So I'm taking mushrooms on by myself and I, uh, which I don't recommend for people, but 
the I had this moment where like um, I left my e-cigarette in my car and I started to get really panicky. And then because of the the trip, it all set in and things were getting like really, really uncomfortable. And so I end up going back to my car. Then I don't want to leave my car because I feel really uncomfortable. So keys are off and I'm super conscientious about that because I don't ever want to make poor mistakes. And so I'm laying in the back of my car, just playing with my e-cigarette. And I'm just like this whole thing. For some reason, I thought, you know, this whole thing dictates my life. And without it, I can't enjoy anything. And like kickboxing, like that's like the most fun thing that I'm doing right now that I've ever done. And this is keeping me from that. And it was just so logical. And after that, I quit smoking. And I've even tried like e-juices because my friend's like, oh, this is cool new flavor by a company. And I was like, but no, like, let me. Oh, that's an all right flavor. And I give it right back to him. I've never had a craving for a cigarette. I've never struggled with smoking again. I tried to quit in the past several times with uh, great failure. And it's been five years since I've smoked. And like, it's not, I shouldn't smoke. That's bad for me. It was that I just wanted to like. It wasn't worth it. Yeah, it cost. It just wasn't the cost was not worth the reward. And it was yep. so logical then I didn't have to think about it. And oh, how much is this going to cost me? It was just right out in front of me. I yep. wanted to have fun. Same thing when I quit smoking when I was 20 years old or so. I didn't smoke as much as you did. I mostly only smoked while I drove. And one day I just said, you know, I don't like smoking and it's not worth it to me. And I still had like a full pack of cigarettes and I went to every community college and I smoked like menthol 100s. So <laughs> I know terrible, but it was the nineties. And um, I thought I'll just carry this pack of smokes around until I bum them off to all the sailors. And it took a long time because people would look at my cigarettes and say, Oh, not that kind. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time my pack was empty and I'd bum them all off to people, I was so sick of that pack of cigarettes. <laughs> I, yeah. It was it was just so not worth it. And I was grateful, like you, that I just changed my mind. I said, I've had enough. This is not worth it for me. Uh, it's not worth it. And those things happen. And I think it's it's a blessing when you have that moment where you say, wow, I see in a bigger picture this thing I'm doing and how it's fucking me over. Yeah. Maybe not majorly, but a little, or maybe it is majorly. And you can see that clearly. That mental shift is so powerful and it happens for anybody. It, it is. And it doesn't feel like uh, it's, I didn't, wasn't fear mongering myself and no one was fear mongering me because I have no. a big history of that where like doctors I have strep throat they're like I'm not going to treat you because you smoke cigarettes and it was like what and they're like here's the here's the uh quitting place you know you come here and we all meet and and stuff you can get off cigarettes and then like are you kidding me uh, yeah other people in school it's like here's all the ways that you could die and I get those things but I the the fear-mongering only it would make me more it didn't work yeah it never I, it didn't work for me and it didn't work oh. for my friends i have a no fear mongering policy for myself with my patients 100 percent. we just have discussions and i tell them that i care about them and here are some facts but i like to balance them out and i get so angry when someone comes in and they've been put on a statin for high cholesterol and their doctor said oh it's because you'll die of a stroke well actually the data doesn't show that a statin reduces the risk of a stroke or, or a heart attack and a person hasn't had an mi so it's actually lies and then this person is then terrified and they feel like that medication is their salvation out of this potential stroke that they theoretically could have and that just it makes me really pissed off because there's so many empowering things we could be doing instead that help benefit their life I, I don't think that's good medicine to try to scare people into things how so what kind of um doctor are you like what's i'm a naturopathic doctor yeah so in a- washington state but what, I basically have the same rights and responsibilities as a medical doctor. I mm-hmm. went to a four-year medical school. I had board exams. But where it differs is that in addition to conventional drug management, which I do know how to do, and minor surgery, which I'm trained in, uh, we have additional training in botanical medicine, herbs, supplements, nutrition, exercise, wellness, sports medicine, and um Basically, we have a more holistic view and we've got some principles for naturopathic medicine, but one of the most important ones to me is to treat the whole person. So if I have a case of strep throat in my office, I'm not just treating that strep throat, I'm treating that person who has strep throat. 
right? Uh, and those things are different because sometimes you can look and very micro focus in on one aspect of someone's life that maybe is a big risk factor, but there's reasons why they do that. And so when you're looking at the whole person, part of my job is to be a detective and figure out workarounds and understand why someone thinks that way or why they've arrived upon this behavior and try to find some gentle, kind and loving ways that we can disrupt that pattern. Oh, wow. That makes sense. That's so I don't, yeah, my new patient appointments, I spend an hour with everybody. Oh, you do? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It means I don't make as much that's, money. That's yeah. for sure. But how are you going to know someone you spend five minutes with? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't. Yeah. And we're complicated people. And, and I also need them to trust me because you don't take advice from people you don't trust. That's the thing that I found when talking to people and their perceptions of doctors is more or less as like pure authority figures in the sense that you have this one conversation with one person and then that's develops your whole, you know, opinion on that. And I realized that knowing doctors that there's a differentiation between sometimes between information and like it's it's more advice from authority figures or from people who have knowledge, you know? Right. And obviously I'm an authority figure in that way. And I try to always be conscious of that, but anyone who wants me just to sit and tell them what to do and shake my finger at them is not a good fit for me. Um, I appreciate it when my patient says, uh, here's why I could do what we talked about last time. Because then we've got an opportunity and an opening to inquire a little deeper, figure out why it didn't work, make a new pattern. I I like to work collaboratively because you don't improve your health with uh, directives necessarily. You improve your health by making changes that stick long term. And if I could tell someone, hey, eat more vegetables and have it stick long term, sweet. I'd be all for that. But that's not how that shit works. Yeah. (laughs) It just isn't. That's not how it works. So it needs to be, here's some ideas of how you could get more vegetables in. Or a common thing I'll do, it'll be, I don't want you to, to change your diet right now. But for the next month before you see me, I want you to start noticing opportunities in your diet where you could have eaten a vegetable or it would have fit in really well with your menu. And then when you come back, we'll talk about it. Oh, how, how does that help them? Does it just get them to see like uh, positive, uh, positive connections with them? They start noticing. They'll say, oh, yeah, you know, that fettuccine Alfredo could have gone well with some green beans on the side or or this soup. I could have added some vegetables to it or my scramble. I could have added vegetables to that. It could work. A lot of people just don't grow up eating that way. Mm-hmm. And so they don't see that. They see I eat macaroni and cheese out of the box and chicken nuggets. I want them to see I could have macaroni and cheese out of the box and chicken nuggets and maybe a third of a plate of vegetables on the side. Or I can mix the vegetables in with my macaroni and cheese. Um, I want them just to start seeing those opportunities first because it's easier to change once you see the opportunities for change. And have you, what are some strategies that, that you've used for people who are particularly um, stubborn? <laughs> I do the same thing. Same thing. Yeah. And most people are really stubborn, aren't we? Don't yeah. we hold on to what we do because we fear change and we don't like change? Probably one oh. of the biggest things. Yeah, we do. And that's normal. And so I just try to be really patient and keep looking for that in. Where is that in? Where is the one way that a class I took on marketing said is what you look for is the pain point. The pain point is where you can sell people on something. And I'm not a good salesperson or marketer in that way. Um, That's not my strength in business. But in life, if you can find someone's pain point, that is where you will find that they are most willing to change. Mm. Because if you can figure out what that pain point is and what they want, right, is what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's not exactly the way I'm thinking about it. This person is thinking, I don't look this good in the mirror and I want to look prettier in high heels. Now, I never think about bodies in the perspective of how they might look more conventionally attractive. So I think healthy function is beautiful and attractive. So I'm thinking that way. But luckily, they both have the same ends to a certain degree or they can. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, with the right perspective. uh, Exactly. So I'm always just looking for that pain point. If I've got a real stubborn person and they don't want to change, I 
I'm not going to make them change. They are not going to change because I tell them to do anything. I can love and appreciate them the way that they are and keep providing opportunities and asking questions. And I'm, well, a good example is that I see more men in my practice than others might because I work a lot with cannabis. And there are a lot of middle-aged men who like to, who have chronic pain and use cannabis. And I've been working with cannabis patients for almost 15 years. So I have a lot more men in my practice than most people do. And so every year we talk about diet, lifestyle, preventative medicine, those kind of things every year when I check in with them. And I had one guy where we've been doing that for years and I see it in his chart and he comes in one day and he said, guess what I did this year? I said, what'd you do? He said, I started cooking. I said, wow. wow. And he tells me all about it and why he started doing it. And it was for me kind of nigging at those pain points every year and probably other people in his life did too. I doubt that I was the pivotal factor there, but he finally found that this pain point was worth changing. And, and when that happens, I think it's really important to never say, Oh, I told you so, or I've been telling yeah. you to do that for years. No, 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 no. You say, wow, I'm so happy for you. Well, how did you think of that idea? Why, why wouldn't you say those things? Uh, because people, don't I well I just don't think that that's the way I think about it yeah, mm -hmm. yeah it I almost don't. makes them would it be fair to say it makes them uh, makes them almost fixate on the dynamic the dynamic between you and that other person and not focus on the true internal reward the why you're doing it because you get this with uh with mm -hmm. parenting it's like to get out of your own way it seems to be like, or maybe just for me, it's the most important thing that I could do. And it's like, we, I get into this thing where it's you, uh, same thing. I, you should do less electronics because I think, you know, you're doing too much electronics. Um, and that's, yeah. uh, that's, that's not the root of it, though. Because really what that is, is it's like, you know, I'm concerned you might be obsessing on something. More is I'm concerned that you don't know how to have discretion with your time. Or I'm concerned that um, you won't have be able to choose how you spend your time because you get fixated on something. And it's like, well, is that really the case? Because the first thing that you could do is, is like, well, you could have this arbitrary amount of electronics time a day, right? Or it's asking questions and trying to say, how do you feel? How do you feel at the end of the day? Did you have a good day today? What did you enjoy about today? How did it work playing video games before you went to school and like being genuine because if I get into this like you know that I'm worried about you and I set these arbitrary things it becomes my dad says I only can do this much video games a day and then oh I you know I get to do it dad can I do more no you can't do more why because I said you know and it 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 misses the whole point and it takes that person's power away from them and all their attention is on me as opposed to on themselves and what the, cause if, if video games were to be a, an issue and it, you weren't, um, maybe you were aggressive or something, you weren't moving your body. Um, then it would feel good to go out and do something. And if it felt good and you helped direct or guide their attention onto how they feel, and it did happen to feel good, then, that might be something that they enjoy. You know what I mean? As opposed to it just being into like what your dad says or what your doctor says and like all of this. And then when you're successful, it's because my doctor was right. And it's like, there's your you're a guide. I'm a guide. Like all of this is inside of you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that. And I want people to feel empowered in their lives. Yeah. I, it's a really strong desire as their doctor that I want them to feel empowered to take good care of themselves. And it's not about me dictating what to do. And I feel like that in many of my other relationships too. I've had some failed relationships where it played into this dynamic of them dictating stuff to me because they didn't like the way I did stuff or I vice like that versa. I... Mm -hmm. And for me, I found in one relationship that I'm thinking of is that it made me more resistant. I didn't want to go home. I didn't want to do anything because I knew I was constantly being judged just for being myself because it wasn't quite what that other person wanted. And when I studied Byron Katie and some other uh, thought leaders in that realm, I started realizing what that means is that that person doesn't really love and appreciate you as you are. They love and appreciate you as what they want to mold you into. And therefore, they never see you and you feel that you don't have their love because you don't. 
because it's not really you. And that's not a, a powerful healing long-term relationship you want in your life. No. You want relationships where people see you. We want to be seen who we are, as, as we are. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to change anybody in my life, even if they do stuff that I don't like. Yeah. I still love them and they do things I don't like, but I'm not going to change that because that's part of this person that I like. Mm-hmm. I might make like you with your son, I might ask questions. Hi, why, why do you do this thing? What's a, what does it do for you? And I'm curious. And I feel like that is something I've developed in the last several years. And I'm really grateful for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's something yeah. that I've, you know, even developed for my own self with my son in the last year. And have had a lot of conversations uh, with his oh, yeah. parents and stuff like that. Because, um, I just I see it getting in between a lot of relationships, especially in like a parent child dynamic. And um, yeah, Yeah, your child is not you. Yeah, no, not at all. (laughs) And and it's like, then I get to the other thing where, you know, it's, um, they're not you and how much of them and their problems have to do with you and your own abilities. And like, why, why entangle yourself up into that and this is the thing i learned is i learned it as um in teaching because in teaching it's the same thing in that if you don't teach if you're trying to teach and your students aren't comprehending what you're teaching you can use that as information to change how you're delivering the message but if it's not working still that doesn't that's not a personal thing to take upon yourself that's just like, oh, they, they were confused. You don't identify, I am a bad person, I am a bad teacher, because this thing's happening. And what I, then what I realize is, is when, that's, when you free yourself of that, you can focus on who you are and being the best of you and your role. You know, I need to be respectful, I need to listen, and I had to tell them what I, just what I wrote down to tell them today, and make sure we start class when it starts and it ends. Like, here's all the things that I can control, and you know you get out what you get out of it and that that's it learning how to train your mind to focus on that so you don't get caught up and entangled in other people and spiral in your self-worth yeah i i totally agree and i think that's been one of my best lessons as a human being is to that you can only be you and if someone isn't for you they're not your person and that's not because there's something wrong with you it's just not a good fit and you don't need to decide that there's something horribly wrong with you because that fit wasn't a good one. And I have a, a dear friend who's also a naturopath that I climb with my friend Archer. And she and I have had so many conversations about who our people are. And she, sometimes you meet someone and you think, oh, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that person either. But it's yeah. just they're not for you and they're not your people. And that's OK. And sometimes it still hurts. You think, why doesn't this person like me? Why is this happening? And it's OK that that hurts and but it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you you can just be you (laughs) i imagine somebody who likes to go off-roading and four-wheeling and if they accidentally wound themselves in a ferrari they might be a little disappointed Uh, yeah you know yeah it's it's like yeah i mean i've had a lot of dating adventures for sure and some of the some of the things people would ask me to do like do you want to come to my house and have a barbecue and watch a movie and i think that sounds like the worst use of a sunny saturday oh my god you are not my people we're not going out we're gonna do something different <laughs> i know and i've had people say aren't you being judgmental shouldn't you just like go out with these guys anyway i'd say no these guys are not going to understand my mountaineering habit and then i need to be gone every weekend the weather is good and they're going to be nagging at every me time the weekends the weather is good right right and you know that's okay but you want a relationship with someone you're actually going to see and so that's where (laughs) i i even found found as well with this thing like uh if you want to be cool you just got to be yourself like this whole like cliche that i kind of grew up with you know Mm -hmm. and like what i realized was there there's still a fear though that like well if i'm myself and there's no one else who does these things and I'm going to be all alone. Like, how do I, you know, it's it's scary to put yourself out there because you got to realize who you are and you have to submit that to reality in a lot of ways. Yep. But you're, you're also for people out there who care more about other people than themselves. Maybe you could use this same trick that it's very rude to do that to other people to, to be disingenuine because they're trying to have a good time. And here you are telling them that you, that you like to do what they do. And then you go do what they do. 
and you don't like to do it. So you're not having a good time and they're all having a good time. And they believe that you like to do what they do and you're not having a good time. So something must be wrong. So now you just fuck right. the whole thing up. It's like, right. <laughs> Being clear and honest, I think is more kind. And, uh, you know, sometimes that means you write someone a message that turns them down and it never feels good to turn people down or say no, at least for me, it never does, but it's more honest to them and it's, it's better long-term because you're not leading them on thinking something different is different than it is. And I think that that's valuable and I think we need to do it in all aspects of life and be able to say no more clearly and kindly and prioritize what's important and not be judgmental about it. And it's okay if someone says no to me and I regularly tell people in my life, it's okay if you turn me down. Have you ever had to turn down somebody um, because of the risk profile of an objective? Oh, I have. How is that? Was that hard? No, okay. that actually isn't for me because I would, especially with Mountaineers, um, I have people that uh, I'm lucky to have a really big um, network of people I can I can climb with who I you know, really trust. And if they have an experience with someone that they thought was really untrustworthy, I tend to go with that. And I've had some experiences where that person in question has asked me on a trip and I would just say, no, and I don't, I don't say why. Yeah, that makes, yeah, exactly. Because really, I mean, then you're getting to he said, she said, and all of that. And I don't want to do that. I'm turning them down because I trust my friend's negative experience and I don't want to spend a whole day or weekend or week of mine worrying that that'll happen. Mm -hmm. You know, will this person actually bring their crampons or yeah. will they just like, you know, <laughs> uh, what will they do? So I will, um, I do some risky trips, but with people that I trust, yeah. you know, it, it's just sometimes you, there's no turning around and I've had a lot of, I've been injured multiple times. I broke my ribs earlier, well, late last year. Um, I, you know, you, you want to be with people that you know have got your back. Yeah. So That's luckily, I feel totally cool saying no to people I don't feel 100% clear on. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel entirely the same way. The part where I have sometimes that I have a hard time is when there's not, when it's a psychological, it, like in route, um, when I'm like psychologically uh, completely exhausted. You know, maybe I'm, I've done like something that was like a 5'11 route. It was like multi-pitch route. And I was huh. following it. And yeah, I don't climb 5'11. So no, I, was, I, don't. I was following it. I'm like, yeah, I can follow anything. I'm on the end of the rope. Sure. And I know how no. to belay. And then we get to this like you, you climb in this little chimney. And then and it was easy climbing in the chimney. And you have to, in the middle of the pitch, climb, step out of the chimney onto a onto a face that is above a massive roof and i could just see like a few hundred feet of air below me and it was immediately like uh five ten plus climbing and i'm just like trying to grab onto everything and i'm really scared and i didn't realize that like because i haven't slouched on the rope as a second a lot um that when no, i let I go um it uh you don't stop where you are because of the rope stretches. So you stretch below the move. So now my feet are like hanging where the oh, shit. roof is. Yeah, and my hands. And so I'm like trying to pull myself up, pulling on draws. And I'm like, oh, this is terrible. We get up uh, through through that pitch and then another 510 pitch and it's super exposed around like goat wall. Uh, I think we're doing like restless natives or Sisyphus. And um, I meet him on the pitch and I'm just going back and forth in my head. Like I can make all this, but I'm just, you know, super adrenalized and this is really hard climbing for me. Uh, I'm out of my element and this feels really exposed. And I just looked to my friend and I'm like, can we go back? And I felt really bad because I just, you know, I'd wrestle in my head all, all the time, but these are the situations where I get to confront peak disappointment. Like, I, I don't do, if I, I, even to clarify for people, if I did this 10 out of 10, that would not be a place to, to deal with my peak disappointment. This would have to be a place to deal with my peak committal issue, right? But since I deal with this, like, maybe twice a year, right, out of all my trips, this is 
me dealing with peak disappointment, being honest with someone and where I'm at, and then making a choice from there. And it's not always like, I need to leave right now. It's the conversation's beautiful because it's like, well, how far are you willing to go? Um, have you met your limit? And how have I affected you? Because I'm not able, I feel too overwhelmed to go forward. Um, and I'm lucky to have yeah. great partners that it's like a, it's not all emotional, but it's like a therapeutic process and that it's just a great conversation. Yeah. I think that that's really important when you're not evenly matched. I have some people I like to go on adventures with who definitely can't do what I can do or haven't tried it before and aren't maybe at the same fitness level. And so I, I always have the deal when I'm out with those people who I love and value as partners so that if they feel uncomfortable at any time, we turn around. Mm -hmm. And so far, we've actually never turned around because I'm happy to hunt around and find the easy route and find the holds and guide them up every little bit because that's, you know, that's okay. That's, yeah. that's part of the beauty and people have helped me that same way. Um, but I, I love that that removes the pressure from my partner. My partner knows that I'm genuine and that if they're not feeling it, we've gotten somewhere cool. We've had a good day. We've enjoyed our time together and I'm not going to bitch. I'm going to say, cool, you made it so far. What a great day. And we're going to turn around. And I love releasing that pressure from them. So that way they can just enjoy their time and do what they're going to do. And I think that's beautiful. And if you have partners like that, they, they are your people. Yeah, it's definitely feels that way. Cause I've never felt more like, you know, t even telling my mom, this is kind of weird, but telling my mom, like, you know, my, my uh, girlfriend's pregnant. Maybe it's only because that's so far away, but I don't, I don't know if it was, I think this is harder than those times, which is really odd because oh, yeah. I don't really know why. Um, but it's like, you know, you would think that that would be the most intense moment of like revealing some kind of information you didn't want someone to find out. And then uh, through recreation, I've been able to brush against more and more intensity to where it's fractal. It's kind of the same thing I'm dealing with, but with greater and greater complexity and more lessons coming from it. Like I'm having to reveal, you know what I mean? Like something to someone and I'm still dealing with it to this day, just like I'll deal with like, you know, uh, self-worth or like insecurity things, but it's getting better and it's improving and the problems are getting more interesting. The more you work on something, the better you get at it. Mm. Right. That's the, I, I think that's funny when people to say, oh, well, I wasn't good the first time. So I give up and I've been that person before and I get that, but that's not how how improvement works in life <laughs> it's it's so much not how improvement works that that's perhaps why you feel the way you feel about heights and that you're afraid of them but you feel confident most of the time in your ability to you know move through this terrain right even though you feel that way and it's like it's not because you told yourself that you've practiced so many times and your body is built like the trust and the confidence in your own you know, movement abilities and stuff. Yeah, you uh, look at the move there. and you know, yeah, I mean, when, when Jake and I climbed Forbidden Peak, his last boulder, um, we were up there, we rope, we got our harnesses on and I don't like jump moves. So I did some sketchy stuff in my rock shoes and kick steps to avoid the little chasm jump at the beginning of the West Ridge. Uh -huh. But, you know, after that, we're climbing and the goal, the idea is that I was a stronger rock climber. I'm not, I'm not out on 5'11s like you, but, you know, I can lead like sport nines probably. And so Forbidden was an easy climb for me, right? And so we were harnessed up and I'm climbing, I'm doing what I'm doing. And behind me, I hear my Jake just cussing. He says, you thought this was okay? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it felt really comfortable and confident. He said, did you see the exposure here? I said, no. I was just looking at my hands and what I'm doing. So we go up a lot of the way, and this was common in our rock climb. Stefan just behind me, cussing away, saying, I can't believe you thought this was okay. <laughs> um, but that just comes from that practice and confidence and me just seeing, oh yeah, it's kind of exposed here, but I've got such good hands and feet. I feel really good and solid. Mm -hmm. And am I still afraid? Yeah. And that's okay. That fear is okay. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've experienced that with, with uh, socializing and that, like, you get nervous around people, and it's yeah. basically about the same thing, you know? And, like, people always look at people on stage, like, oh, how can you do that incrementally? Like, you know, it's like... It's, it, and also, I think yeah. it has to be somehow 
maybe I'm wrong, but you probably could speak to this as your practice, um, motivate, self-motivated, intrinsically motivated. And when it's like, when it's a, when it's passionately motivated, then that's even the better. But I, I think that's probably more rare. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you need your motivation, right? Public speaking though, I think is way more scary for me than rock climbing. I was my college commencement speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, I got voted in as that. I tried not to be, but I was, and it was at Ben Royal Hall with thousands of people. It was by far the most terrifying experience of my life. Oh, I shook so much. I could hear the podium rattling <laughs> on the stage while I was talking. <laughs> uh -huh. I wish I'd cut up a copy of what I said because I have no idea. It's like this blur. <laughs> Just blanked. Blank. Exactly. <sighs> and people afterwards, they said, oh, that was so good. You didn't look nervous at all. I thought, did you see me? <laughs> I mean, you didn't see me, clearly. But <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> by far, the most scary thing is to be on on like that kind of situation for me but again i'm not climbing hard level rock i like more like traditional yeah. classic mountaineering maybe sevens and eights at the most so i'm not in those sphere situations but i do climb a lot of things without a rope that i probably it's maybe questionable at times <laughs> yeah that's where you specialize in though right because there's you specialize in that sweet spot between um like technical roped climbing and then like class two walking right right into yeah. the scrambling and and w w it would be best to say what weaving through technical terrain to find non-technical terrain well i climbed some technical stuff too but let me i mean if i could ex explain it well by explaining what rack i own i own four cams <laughs> and i own a set of nuts <laughs> normally if i carry a rope it might be a 30 meter rope because it'll be for that little thing mm -hmm. um but and yeah and i think i only brought a 30 meter rope to climb forbidden peak too because i i really just wrapped mm -hmm. yeah. we didn't use it to climb yeah so, so that's a tricky place because i think that that is a dangerous dangerous choice and i keep thinking now that i should rope up on board that fourth class exposed terrain but then when you do it adds all this time and complexity and i kind of like to just get up there and i don't know <laughs> uh, how, yeah how do you arrive to that <laughs> right so i mean i the thing is, is that just like that fear of heights or any other hobby, you do it more and more and you get more comfortable with those uncomfortable situations and it starts mm -hmm. to feel normal to you. And I'm sure that that's the place where I am now, where often fourth class terrain, I look at it and think, ooh, this is kind of dangerous, but oh, I've got good holds, oh, I've got good feet. Oh, can I reverse this move? Yeah, I can get back down this and then I will normalize it and it will feel fine. Mm -hmm. I can be with someone else who gets there and they think, whoa <laughs> are you sure um and so that's okay but it's just really i don't know it's hard to figure out what the right line is and i think in mountaineering once you get to expose places where falling is life-threatening you probably should be roped up but i have not quite made that transition fully yet <laughs> you came into a lot of it though from um from the scrambling side right and that's yeah. that's the place that you entered it from so, yeah i i've been gym climbing for um, about 10 years but i haven't done a lot of strict route climbing outside and part of it is that i mean like let's say a day cragging i feel like i haven't gotten a workout I really need a certain amount of workout or I am a cranky, horrible human being. I was with a friend yesterday and I didn't have time to work out because I work a long day on Thursdays and I commute to Tacoma and I'm running around my apartment and he says, you seem really scattered and weird today. Did you work out today? I said, no. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, I can tell. <laughs> What's working so, out mean to you? Like, um, um, At the minimum for me, like half an hour of a good effort where I get my endocannabinoids and endorphins going so it's mainly cardio in that sense then right yeah and i okay. do love to gym climb but i i, I and i did that, that that morning i went to the gym at 6 a.m and i got my climbing in but it's still 
without some kind of cardio or an, an hour of good yoga will work too because you can do that as cardio but if i don't have that i don't feel right mm-hmm. and so that's why i struggle with like spending a day craiging to get to be a good rock climber because i have so many people they'll say you could be really good at this if you tried and i'd say yeah but then the other thing is these nice days i could climb a real mountain yeah i could be on the top of some new mountain or i could spend my day climbing up and down and up and down and getting cold and wearing a jacket uh, that for me is an easy sell that I want to climb the real mountain uh, at the the loss of my technical progress. Be fine, yeah. Do yeah. you do you get that workout in from the the scrambling experience, or is that all the 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 approach and deproach that you get that workout in? It depends on how fast you can go and the conditions. Yeah, but often it's like the approach and the deproach because if you're on a lot of class two, class two can be the shittiest stuff. Um, And I do go out with some people who can move incredibly fast in class two and three terrain, and that is not me. Um, I'm a little slower than they are, but I might be faster on a trail. I mean, a great example is climbing. I climbed Jack with Alden Rhino last year. And I was actually on Jack with Alden when Jake died, which was Whoa. kind of interesting. I know, like the same hour even. Wow. And on the trail, I can really go. But on, on that kind of chossy class three and four crud up the southeast face of Jack, boy, is Alden so fast. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's okay. You know, I'm never going to be that. So I don't get the same workout in that kind of scenario because you're doing the mental workout of the yeah. micro route finding. Where's my hold? Where's this? If I slip here, am I going to fall down this gully and off a cliff? Uh, you're looking at all that. It's not like me trying to do an hour and 15 minute mailbox. So, so if, so if it were like, if the, the state of mind that you get into and the, the physical sensation that you get into, if that were a, like a personality or if that were a drug, right. Would you, would you be able to classify it as its own thing in compared to the, um, the route finding and the scrambling and things like that? Like does, does that approach and deproach give you a certain mental and physical state that is unique compared to mental and physical state you find when scrambling in that somewhat technical track? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I love that, that cardio high feeling. Mm-hmm. You, uh, I have a goal of trying to climb 14,000 vertical per week. And I do, I have done that successfully the last couple of years. I've climbed over 700,000 vertical. So do wow. I do a lot of hill training? Oh yeah. Heck yeah, I do. And it feels really, really good and it's rewarding. And my research on it is showing it's not just the endorphins that people think of. The whole endocannabinoid system is involved in this process too. And probably other stuff we don't know. Oh, really? Yeah. It, that's a whole huge topic that's super cool. That's and I keep cool. learning more about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, it is, I'm, I'm actually very happy to just go trail run a peak and down again and not have to scramble at all, but, and I'll do long routes with no summits. And I think it's super fun. I'm happy with that too. Woo! Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to check out more of Selena's um, adventures, you can find her on Instagram at Dr. Selena Eon. You can find the link to that in the show notes. And you can also find out more about the Living Arrows in the show notes. Be sure to check them out. Um, I'm going to play you out with the song called Set You Free. Enjoy. I've been told it's a long walk home From the fountain to the foam So shed your skin and grow your wings Show your face and throw yourself before the Lord of names Endure your wealth and enjoy your pain It may be that only Set you free. You free. There's no telling, there's no guarantee. You may fly. Fledgling from the tree. You may fall. You may 
There's no telling, there's no 